Welcome to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. Understanding VC is a show where I talk to VCs to learn how they work. Today my guest is Ben Chan, general partner at SN Vietnam Ventures, an early stage venture capital fund investing in the growth of Southeast Asia. Prior to SN, Ben was a partner at 500 Startups Vietnam and is a co-founder of Cloud, an app that rated its users social media influence using digital analytics. Now let's talk to him. Hey Ben, thanks for joining me today on my podcast. Thanks for having me, Rahul. So let's start with your background. Like, where did you grow up, and what were your interests growing up? Wow, we're gonna go way back. Huh? I grew yeah. up in Southern California, so I was born in Vietnam, left as a war refugee, and uh, okay. spent most of my life in California. My background was pretty normal. I had a very loving family, and I think for me, getting onto computers was destined. I think I started uh, coding at a very young age, I mean, at age of 13, which isn't a big deal these days, but this is back in 1986 when the oh. IBM XT was out and there wasn't an internet. So it was clear to me, hey, I, I love software and I love building it and I love tweaking it. That began a journey to where I am now. Okay. So suppose then you studied uh, computer science in college or? I did. So I graduated with a computer science degree. One of the first jobs coming out of college was to start programming video games. I made a PlayStation 1 and Nintendo 64 game. Both games I'm, I'm quite okay. proud of. I'm actually in the game. Nice. I put myself as a villager. <laughs> and and uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the first Vietnamese video game character, but one of the earliest. Nice. Nice. So from that making video games, like what, what did you do like since then? Yeah, that's, uh, I can talk about where I, I started from there till now. So software for me was just really interesting, the idea that you can be so creative and combine this side of science and math with such creativity was extremely enjoyable. And obviously, video games is a, is a great way to be able to express that. I really enjoyed being able to work with musicians and artists and animators and designers, just this multifaceted group of people coming in, creating a product. I mean, the gaming industry back then was really abusive. I think at the time, most of the power went to publishers who actually had physical shelves. You would sell boxes of software in the egghead, and it was yeah. all in the powers of distributors and marketers. So the people actually making the games, they were working 60, 80 hours a week. I mean, these poor video game testers who signed up to play video games, I'm going to get paid for playing video games. They would play in day in, day out the entire summer. It became torturous. So I would say there are times where you are really enjoying yourselves and other times you realize, wait, I haven't stepped out of this cave for many for days. And yeah. So imbalance in terms of the economics for, for a lot of creators there. This is towards the end of the 90s. I started seeing a lot of my colleagues go on and get receive signing bonuses, they would receive BMWs for joining with the software company and things were just insane over there. So that piqued my interest. I was like, hey, something's going on. Why am I slaving 80 hours a week only to have, go into arbitration with our publisher and you know, them trying to dick us around? So I, I jumped over to the internet world and started learning relational databases and, and everything else. One of my first jobs in, in that arena I was with a Microsoft consulting company in Santa Monica, and the first few days of joining, 
the owner said, hey, you're flying to Atlanta on Monday to teach a database normalization class. First of all, I'd never taught a class before, and I never, never don't even know what database normalization was, but he was the type of boss who was a little crazy but, and wanted to challenge you in ways he thought couldn't be challenged. And so he was uh, pretty influential in my life. He's no longer here, but he's definitely had a big impact on my life and just being bold and, and doing something. And I think I was nice. the, the youngest person in that classroom, for sure. So I, I think when I first walked in, people were saying, you know, what, what's this kid doing teaching me database normalization? Yeah, through that period, I went on to, before putting on my investor hat, form five partnerships. And four of them were kind of from scratch, building a product, wrapping a company around it. I guess when it comes to software, you're always building products. So I'm always building products, trying to you know, create solutions, things like that. Some, some of them become commercial and some of them you, you, oh. you try to get your team wrapped around and start doing something, something with. And so I've had most of these endeavors. I'm the very first person. I write the first line of code, right? Okay. And I get like any technical co-founder, you know, as the company grows, you're hiring people who desperately want to get rid of your code, right? Because your code's so, so crappy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a few false starts and had a few successes. My last one was with the company uh, called Clout. We started in 2008, you know, after, this is just around the time of the global financial crisis. So yeah. it's super challenging. I know Clout. So I still remember my Cloud score. It was just 34 and I, I tried uh, doing a little bit of research on seeing like how I can increase it. Yeah, it definitely became a magnet for controversy. You know, people were getting yeah. pissed that their scores were going up and down and not knowing why. The reality is we were trying to build a Google for people. The amount of data we were ingesting on a daily basis exceeded 200 terabytes of data. This is more data. This is okay. back in 2011, 12, more data than Twitter, you know. So it was an incredible amount of data, extremely challenging, I think, for us. That became part of the reason why we were able to assemble such amazing talent. But the reality is like people had thousands and thousands of scores. What were you, how, what was your impact on your piece of content across these networks? You know, what kind of information and actions were driven by what you shared or any of your actions online? So it became really an interesting phenomenon. I remember having a dashboard, the registrations, and, and I think our first year, going out, we would have the registration scroll and each of the peoples whose scores would be changing color and, and, and font based on how large the score was. And we would see like Lady Gaga, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, the White House, and basically any and every person creating content was signing up. And it was, it was okay. really empowering in the sense that, you know, we were trying to do something to help with folks creating content, you know, how do we help them, you know, manage their their audiences, understand how to create more engaging content, basically democratize the power of content. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, could you share the founding story of Cloud? Why did you guys start? And yeah, so Joe Fernandez was my co-founder there. The, the Cloud, when he approached me, 2008 in LA, we were sitting in a in a Mexican restaurant in LA. And having a burrito and he told me about the his idea and his his surgery jaw had been wired shut and his only 
voice in the world was online. He started to understand like, hey, you know, people should know that I'm such an expert in Mexican food. <laughs> you know, you should listen to me when I come in. So it, it just became this idea to be able to understand the amount of data that was online being generated by social. And within 30 seconds, I said, let's do it. Joe at the time, that was, Cloud had, would be our kind of third startup together. You know, the first one was a company called Trade Junkies, shared economy around video games that back in 2002, 2003, that really never got left the ground besides a business plan, but we, we thought it was really interesting. It was during that time that he convinced me to, to build, a, build the first version of a company called, um, product called Evaluologics. And that, that, okay. that's a kind of B2B SaaS software for K-12, uh, the, the K-12 educational system. Basically helping different stakeholders, teachers, parents, uh, special ed, specialists, coordinate care and assessments around uh, special ed kids. So that Clout, Clout was my third startup with them. Yeah, yeah. And this always happens, right? Like when you find somebody who, who you're comfortable working with and then you build up a trust and then that sync, then you continue doing that. I also do that with, with my co-founder. Yeah, partnerships are really hard to come by. It takes time to get them right there's it's it's like a marriage right yeah it's like a marriage yeah yeah absolutely sometimes partnerships outlast marriages yeah (laughs) (laughs) yes right so hopefully it doesn't happen to you but sometimes they do yeah yeah so i've had five partnerships my sixth one currently with eddie ty and the new fund but yeah the cloud story was an interesting one because this is global financial crisis we had 40 angel investors in our seed round I worked a year and a half without pay. We were taking checks from anywhere. You know, we were taking $5,000 checks. It took two years to close that seed round. So very different time. And I also, I remember reading a story that you guys came to Singapore and, and Joe Fernandez, he was sleeping on the couch of one of the engineers. Where yeah. I don't know. Duration Incorporated was the software vendor that we had worked with. And so after some initial lines of code, we moved ourselves to Singapore in January 2019. The goal was to build an MVP. 2009, get, right? Sorry, sorry, 2009. Yeah. It's been a long time. 2009, you know, and Singapore back then was not really about venture capital or, or technology. You know, most of it was finance and biotech. And so but we did find some software engineers. It was great because, you know, Singapore is the opposite time of the U.S. So we had just half a day of uninterrupted work and we were just heads down. The goal was to be able to build something and launch at South by Southwest, one of the biggest, I guess, startup conferences at the time. Back in 2007, I think Twitter launched at South by Southwest. 2008 was Foursquare and we said 2009 was going to be cloud. You know, this is going to make us, you know, obviously it didn't. We built the product, MVP, took it to South by Southwest, and we lost our competition to a company called Ripple. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, I guess that's, that's six years is packed full of uh, fond memories and, and struggles and a lot of heartache, but also a lot of fun. So after cloud, that's when you joined 500 startups or? Yeah. So we sold cloud in 2014. I left four months later, started traveling, and that's where I met Eddie. You know, for me, putting on being an investor, jumping to the dark side 
was not something in, in the plans, right? I had been an angel investor since 2012. I was one of the first checks into a unicorn called Outreach, invested into a couple other Series B companies. So there's, I think, positive experiences there and a track record there, but I never th- thought, okay, I, I need to do this as a living, especially not in, in Vietnam. But that changed once I met Eddie. Eddie, you know, for me, was a catalyst for shining a light into the opportunity over here, having conviction on where Southeast Asia was headed, in particular where Vietnam sits within that opportunity. And so our first fund, we launched under 500 Stars Vietnam. So we created that brand. We, we were co-founders on that fund and started deploying capital. We were one of the first tech-focused VC seed funds in Vietnam. There had been other investors in Vietnam before, for example, IDG, yeah. but they had started when you know, there's a one megabit internet speeds and you know where is downstream capital, where is the scale. In a modern VC tech definition, you know, Vietnam, we think got its inception around 2016, right? Okay. Singapore around 2010, right? Singapore even is, yeah. is still pretty young. Yeah, yeah. So like you mentioned, you're one of the earliest seed investors in Vietnam. So what were some of your initiatives like to grow the ecosystem? What, what were your, some, some, of the, some of your initiatives? A lot, of, a lot of it was education and education, not just for the founders here, but also education for us. You know, we needed to build a very large portfolio to understand what founders were working on, what sectors were they focused on, what kind of problems they were going to solve. And start building out our capacity and our deal flow and start mapping out you know, kind of regional investors and other co-investors. So a lot of it was not just investing, but yeah, some of the ecosystem building. You know, what are convertible notes? You know, convertible notes and yeah. also mapping the flow of money. What are the concerns of international investors when it comes to tech and VC? What are the opportunities there? So I guess when it came to VC, before being a venture capitalist, I had the wrong notion of investors sitting on a beach, sipping Mai Tais <laughs> and investing. <laughs> I had no idea how much work this is going to be. And um, especially in our emerging market in a nascent ecosystem like Vietnam, it's it was just a lot that we had to do. Uh, I'm glad we did it. Obviously, have a lot of experience now and and. I think we have a, a strong track record and real excited on where Vietnam's headed and particularly within the context of the region. Yeah. So, yeah, where is Vietnam headed to? What are some of the maybe unique opportunities for Vietnam as a tech ecosystem within Southeast Asia? Yeah. So I'll pull back just a bit. I mean, when you have emerging Asia happen historically, you know, you have yeah. Japan, you know, South Korea, China, India. Taiwan. Yeah, Taiwan. You have these generational, iconic global companies come out. Southeast Asia is the next emerging Asia, except, you know, there's a lot of interesting, uh, different dynamics. The first dynamic, diversity, large market with a, a multitude of different markets you have to piece together for scale. Two, the ability to leapfrog, you know, learn from China, India, and be able to take not the same path, but what is what is the hottest deal in India and China business models that's working over there last quarter and see if we can implement it this quarter. The third, I think, is is pretty important, the accessibility. 
you know, whereas China and India are accessible mostly to certain people with, uh, within the world, certain stakeholders, Southeast Asia represents a truly accessible market, accessible to anyone, Southeast Asians, Chinese, Indians, Europeans, Americans. So yeah. huge, diverse group of, of folks building and serving this region. And as expected, you know, all the analysts' expectations are, are being exceeded. So if you think accessibility is unique and kind of the proponent for a performance and, and increased maturity within Southeast Asia for, in our context, VC and tech, Singapore and Vietnam are really accessible. You know, they're one of the two countries within Southeast Asia that allow 100% ownership of a foreigner of a local entity. You know, that's by design. I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's by design. You know, Vietnam has 100 million people, which is large, but not large enough to implement protectionist policies. You know, these protectionist policies are typically meant to block foreign forces and, and help local companies gain an edge. Yeah. Instead, you know, kind of opening up the market has helped Vietnam with the diversification of supply chain. But you, then you see other sectors. If you look around Vietnam, a lot of the market-leading companies are led or founded by foreigners, foreigners who don't speak the local language. You know, Shopee, nice. Lazada, Facebook, Grab. You know, you look at even companies like Big C, the offline supermarket chain, or PharmaCity. You know, so the key to win Vietnam isn't speaking the local language. You still, and this is similar to. All the other markets that entrepreneurs will be tackling still need to build local teams, local yeah. products, local brands that speak to the minds and hearts of the local customers to win that market. And so entrepreneurs need to respect that and be able to execute like that across across the markets they achieve, they, they tackle. Yeah. But yeah, the accessibility is key, I think, for Vietnam's success and has helped Vietnam mature faster than expected. And where, where it's headed and where the region's headed, we think there's some really interesting things happening. We believe there's a wave of internationally iconic tech companies that are starting their journey in Vietnam now. Yeah. So the country is accessible, but then let's say I were to travel to Vietnam and then how would I go about like setting up a team? I can't even speak the language and understanding the work culture. Well, Vietnam's so, been exporting uh, how, software. Well, I, I think you, st- you have to look at the kind of demographics. So... First, you have 100 million people. A lot of the industries revolve around tech. You know, Vietnam, just about a month ago, said we want 20% of our GDP to come from the digital economy. So big lofty goal, but it's been almost three decades that Vietnam has been exporting software. Companies like FPT, like outsourcing dev shops, like in like what you see in India. Yeah. Right. So the raw ingredients are there. You have just a young population that is in tech, that's doing things in tech. You have a, a market that's very accessible. In other words, you don't need to speak the language to come here and start a business. And many friends don't don't speak the language, right? The cost of living is really well suited for startups. It's safe. It's exactly. stable. So, I mean, for me, if I'm sitting anywhere in the world and I want to go and build a software company and I need to get to product market fit, so I'm early stage seed. It's hard to argue against Vietnam being the best place to do that, right? You get product market fit in Vietnam, highly likely that same customer 
having that same problem, looking for the same solution, willing to buy at that same price point exists in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Bangladesh, in XYZ. So it's really important to be able to understand where you're launching your market, what you're validating there in the earliest stages. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's an also an opportunity to even target the mature, developed markets, right? The US and the European markets. I think uh, that's what at least that's what a lot of SaaS startups from India do. They're completely focused on the US market because they pay well. Absolutely. I mean, we have companies like Atlassian, right? Building global software. They had hundreds of engineers in Vietnam. You know, we have a company like Anduin Transactions, whose markets in the US, their entire software teams in Vietnam. You know, yeah. I mean, there's a there's one company in our portfolio that we should probably talk about, a company called Axie Infinity. You know, they are a global leading company. Yeah. You know, I, I really wanted to talk about uh, Axie Infinity because that, that's like a very interesting thing in a forefront of tech. And so, uh, yeah, how did you come across Axie Infinity? Okay, I guess I guess for folks who don't know Axie Infinity, just to give you some context, they're the most successful blockchain game in the world right now the number one NFT project on the planet, 2 million DAU, which is incredibly unheard of for, for a blockchain application. So far, $700 million in revenue, not GMV, but revenue. Expected to hit $1 billion in revenue end of 2021. They have non-crypto like enthusiasts as users and players. So they've, they seem to have hit kind of main, mainstream audiences. So we came across uh, Axie in 2018 when they only had about a little under 400 players. But back then we would still still have see videos, music videos generated by the community about them. So they had something. We didn't know exactly what. We we were the only VC in the world in their seed round. There were other investors, but most of them were corporate. So feel very lucky uh, to be part of that early journey. They became part of our accelerator. So this is our first batch of a program designed to help companies acquire customers. So it's good. it was a growth program, roughly 12 weeks in length. We focus on topics like how to create a framework for growth, how to measure it, you know, what are their experiments you need to run, you know, if you have a sales process, how do you troubleshoot that, all within the context of Southeast Asia. And so we brought in experts who had achieved growth and done, performed a lot of these experiments within Vietnam, within the region. And it wasn't so much, hey, we're going to teach you, we're going to fish for you, we're going to teach you how to fish. So foundationally, you know, what were the things you needed to do to kind of create a growth machine? So th this was under the 500 startups brand, right? Yeah, I would say 500 startups Vietnam. So 500 startups Vietnam is a, is a brand that uh, Eddie and I had built. You know, 500 stars was unknown when we started in 2015 here. You know, where we are now with our new firm, Ascend Vietnam Ventures, basically it's the same team. We just rebranded it. Right? You mentioned about the growth program. So what are some of the other ways that you help your portfolio companies? Yeah, we think fundamentally companies to win in this next phase of Southeast Asia fundamentally need to focus on building a very different type of organization. When I think about kind of mapping out the evolution of, say, China or India, the first wave of entrepreneurs were often, you know, first movers with some capital, but the ecosystems were still maturing and the competition was as strong. So we think now because of the maturity and competition, companies really need to focus on kind of 
uh, three fundamental areas. One uh, that I mentioned was just basically a really optimal, efficient growth machine. Two is probably kind of natural, which is a optimal capital path, being capital efficient, telling the right stories, finding the right investors to be able to help you on that trajectory. And the third is, so when I, when I talk about people, I talk about helping founders give them the tools to be able to create the culture that fits them in the market, and then giving them tools to be able to make this culture visible from the outside. There's some, some companies that you look at and you, and you say, I, there's a certain vibe about them. You know there's high-performing people working there, right? Yeah. Startups need to create that at the get-go. Yeah. And that, that yeah. becomes a magnet for exceptional talent. And so yeah. once you have this visibility, you need to create a recruiting brand and a candidate ex- experience that attracts this exceptional talent and brings them in, right? Once you bring them in, then you need to be able to retain them. You need to empower them. So these organizations you're building, they need to have a structure. You need to develop your organization in a way that you know there's much more autonomy in smaller teams that have clear alignment on goals and how to go about executing them and for them to be acknowledged and rewarded when they achieve them. And then being able to go and develop these these like leaders as well. So you as a founder, you're hiring people smarter than you. How are you going to lead them? How are you going to really empower yeah. them? And yeah. then... This is really challenging, right? One, for startups, it's like a war scenario. It's not like a peacetime <laughs> thing. And it's not like Google where you can you know have a fancy office and uh, do things in a, in a very relaxed way. This is like pressure all the time on a founder. And the second thing is that a lot of founders have no experience. So... <laughs> So I really think that, I mean, so I'm, I fully believe that, yeah, there needs to be a lot of teaching around uh, people and culture and it can really change probably like a, have a significant impact on the GDP. Like if you were to like improve the culture and management of every single company. People don't preach culture enough. I mean, people do, do preach it on a superficial level and you see yeah. people putting values on the wall and it becomes a lot of just hot air, but they don't know how to yeah. really practice that. They don't know how to yeah. reward and celebrate it in a way that really codifies someone's behavior, right? And the most yeah. exceptional talent out there, they're starting their own companies because they can't find companies that can really fit them, that can really reward them into a, a common mission. So almost all the exceptional talents, like, hey, I don't see great companies for me. I got to build my own, yeah. right? So if you come out and, and come out with amazing, ambitious mission and create an organization deeply grounded around excellent engineering culture, amazing data, and empowering people that to, to really excel, but they, they're not right, quite ready to, to scratch that entrepreneurial itch, you're going to be a magnet. You're going to create an incredible world-class organization and be able to take on any incumbent that you see in any sector. You look around. I mean, what world-class engineering-driven company do you see that matches that of, say, Shenzhen or, or Silicon Valley? Very few. Yeah. Very, Very few, yeah. huge gap, huge gap between them, right? Yeah. So that's the yeah. opportunity for startups in the next stage here. To win, you have to build that. Yeah, yeah. And another problem is that when you're building a startup, the focus is usually more on investors and also your customers, obviously, and less on the team. So, yeah, I think that priority needs to be realigned, I guess. Yeah, I mean... As a founder, I don't want to throw money at a problem. That's just hiding something that's going to rear its head later, right? 
Yeah. I want to build a foundation, especially in the first 18 months of a company's formation. Those are foundational pieces that live on well beyond the seed round, right? That can set you on a very, very different trajectory. You know, once a culture has been set, once the organizational structure has been set, very, very hard for them to change. So, yeah, I think addressing it early and having investors who can appreciate that and give you guidance on that. We're not going to come in and say, hey, you need to build this product this way. Or we're not going to come in and think we're experts in a domain or field, but we're going to be experts. And hey, if you need help on aligning the conversations between your product team and your engineering team, and you want to figure out like what are some optimal things you can do to encourage a healthy engineering culture, you know, we have the operational experience. Yeah, yeah, that's really valuable. Yeah. So when you think about uh, Axie, did they check all the boxes in terms of like having a great culture? from the very beginning? Yeah, actually represents a bit of validation on our thesis. Our thesis that, you know, there's a wave of iconic companies coming out of Vietnam. And a lot of that is due to the accessibility and software talent here. So actually was started by Chung. Chung is um, a software engineer by education. So he graduated from Yukoku University, never went to school overseas, never worked for Google or Facebook but decided after college he needed to go and build some software that make money. One of the first things that comes to mind is the e-commerce shop. So he had to go and compete from day one with the Lazada. Spent a couple of years trying to compete against a, a international giant like that. That's going to give you some scars and learnings. He went on to, to join a couple other startups. One of them was Anduin Transactions, who sells software to, to the U.S., fund administration software. So learning about modern software tech stacks and modern software development methodologies and learning how to world, build world-class software, right? And a couple other stints like that. And then he started connecting with some uh, some players, some of the folks in CryptoKitties. And due to the accessibility and, and diversity within the Vietnam market, met an American and met a guy from Norway and decided, hey, we needed to do something, maybe do a next version of CryptoKitties, you know, because what we had in terms of missing social and mobile, there's just new frontier here we can we can start addressing. And so we didn't come across them until 2018. I think at the time they had under 400 players or users, but our partner discovered them, brought them in and started talking and um, closed the investment in 2019. We were the seed, seed investors. We're the only VC in that seed round. There are other investors, but they were corporate investors. And then we helped them with their growth and just got uh, to learn more and more about how they executed. I guess when it comes to our first check and due diligence there, a lot of it had to do with just focusing on the team, some of the early traction they had. We liked the fact that the community there was so, you know, they had a small but rabid group of customers, right? Of players, players who love them. Yeah, that's always a great sign. Yeah. They're also super thoughtful in the things they were doing and and how they would ingest information and, and make it actionable. So, our first check was based on a bunch of assumptions. The follow-on checks were based on how we saw them operate and how, how they saw that we saw them execute. They hadn't hit traction yet. You know, that I mean, it was still early in building. It was earlier this year. You know, they, they didn't have the numbers that they had now, right? 197 million in July, 
$375 million in revenue in, in August. You know, these are all kind of recent, but the foundation yeah. of their thoughtfulness, their craftsmanship around the product, how they were completely aligned with the community they were building and people trusted them. These were all just like signs of uh, the foundations for uh, potential success, right? So that's the story of Axie. I think it's indicative of how founders, both international as well as local, are finding a place where they can, number one, they need to compete with the likes of Shopee and Lazada, but also everyone's learning in an incredibly rapid pace. Right? So you yeah. have this local founder with just experiences as in Vietnam, now building a globally leading company, you know, out competing multi-billion dollar unicorns like Forte and, and, and other folks. So real exciting to see. We're going to see more of these. Yeah. So I had this exact thought. When I first came across Axie Infinity, I was like, okay, this is like a real good sign that, yeah, companies from Southeast Asia can build world-class, like leading tech companies. And, and I don't know much about uh, Vietnam uh, ecosystem. Uh, and uh, yeah, this was my first thought when I came yeah, across Axie. Yeah, there's only, I guess, TikTok is another one uh, in terms of software, globally leading companies. So there's very few. But there's, there's, there's other stories of Vietnam to the world, right? So I mentioned earlier, Anduin Transactions. We have a company called Trusting Social that's in Bangladesh, India, Philippines, Vietnam. Launched out of here, backed by Sequoia. We have a company called Virtual Internships that's building for the world. They're, they have presence in London, but their main team here is in Vietnam. And virtual internships is just what it is. It's helping people intern, students access internships, which is the biggest deciding factor for, for employment. And then helping small and medium-sized businesses come up with internship programs because sometimes it's very hard. They don't have the resources and, uh, and increasing access globally. We have a company like Earable, which has built the most accurate sleep monitoring device in the world, you know, and they're about to launch in the U.S. Their entire team's here, right? We have a company like uh, PLC Pharma, who is building emerging market pharmaceutical solutions, SaaS solutions for the retail market in, in emerging markets. And they're proving it out in Vietnam, using Vietnam as a testbed. But that's going to be a global, yeah. global company. Yeah. yeah. So I, and I can go on. So there's a lot of these people know about the Vietnam macro stories. They don't know about the kind of international successes coming out of Vietnam, Lar largely because, you know, there's not i guess ecosystem's been pretty nascent we think we think it was, its inception was around 2016 yeah and i think also because uh, only consumer <laughs> consumer products get a lot of attention at least in media yeah b2b is a little little bit boring you know yeah. 70% of our prior prior fund is b2b you know we've had yeah. cash on cash exits on b2b we think it's super exciting we think it's super scalable and so our power fund, we had 76 in, in companies, you know, 70% are B2B and we yeah, have a top, yeah. top performing fund. So we are not shy about B2B at all. We, you know, we do think it's a backbone for Southeast Asia's value creation. And in, yeah. in Vietnam, 97% of the enterprises are SMEs. So we don't see startups here trying to sell to the VIN, VIN group or big conglomerates. No, they're selling, trying to solve problems for these SMEs. And if you do that here, highly likely that same customer with that same problem, willing to pay that same price point, exists in emerging Asia. Yeah, Indonesia, Philippines, and Bangladesh. And yeah. yeah, yeah. 
so uh, now let's uh, talk a little bit about fundraising so uh, this is a very interesting thing i i came across a like a survey uh, of uh, what are the priorities for a startup and also what are the priorities for vcs and speed is like one of the top priorities for a startup raising a fund i mean raising a, <laughs> a round of investment but it's one of the least pri- least priorities for a vc um yeah why is that so startups need capital i think it's a high priority for vcs um but if i was to create an analogy you know when i go fundraise from allocators or or lps we are definitely not their number one priority right and so to be able to increase uh the prioritization i need to be able to nail the focus clearly in 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 my approach so i need to qualify if i'm going to go fundraise from a family office or an institution i need to make sure that they're writing checks that fit my fund that they're open to being able to go and invest in funds that there's um a strategy that fits theirs like are they doing emerging markets are they looking for impact only all these different things that come into play founders need to do the same thing with vcs they need to qualify them although the vc dynamic is quickly changing i mean andreessen just launched a 400 million dollar seed fund graylock just launched a 500 million dollar seed fund mm-hmm. i remember when you know seed funds were like 25 mil 50 mil <laughs> so there's things changing in the vc landscape i i co-invested alongside andreessen on a pre-seed deal you know uh a couple months ago and just last month co-invested alongside sequoia on a on a pre-seed deal. So things are changing uh, quite rapidly, but uh it still remains the same that founders need to qualify who they're talking to. You know, are yeah. there is is their fund active and are they into pulling capital? Are they writing it at the at the stage when which I'm in fundraising? Are they writing investing in the sectors I'm fundraising at for? So it it's really important to be able to nail uh, and uh, qualify ruthlessly. right so you don't you're not wasting yeah. each other's time yeah qualify and also create some uh, urgency right uh, so in terms of yeah there's there's definitely fundraising strategies that founders should implement i mean going out there and doing fundraising 25% of time doesn't do your investors or your company any real justice fundraising sucks takes your 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 focusing away from your product and your customers but capital can be a, an enormous advantage for you and really sets you apart defensively so if if venture capitals where you think there's a good fit for your company then when you do fundraise spend 100% of your time on it have someone else focus on leaving the lights on or keeping the lights on and then when you do fundraise make it effective you know go out and generate that momentum you know coordinate so that you can generate momentum Right? there's strategies you can implement so that you know everyone's talking about talking to you having first conversations at the at the same time right and it was like oh do you hear about this company this company and then you know uh, this generates I, we don't invest by fomo you know we, for example we just came yeah. across a deal yesterday and it's closing this this Friday I'm like I'm not I'm not going to jump in that fomo deal all right but some do and it it leaves a lasting impression and so you can generate that with with the right strategies yeah yeah be the topic of conversation within between vcs right yeah. yeah and that's just a coordination or gating information at the same time yeah. right yeah yeah 
It's it's yeah. a simple tactic. Yeah. Uh, so so what are some of the other strategies that uh, startups can use? I mean, it's a storytelling that's become some of the most impactful, right? You yeah. need to be able to master storytelling and understand who you're, you're telling that story to. The story you tell to customers is very different from the story you tell investors. And they're very different from the stories you tell employees. So yeah. you really have to put yourself in your, your audience's shoes, map out that narrative that gets them excited to get them to believe in you. So when you do go out and storytell, don't don't start with, you know, this is these are the points I need to come across, but kind of very high level. What's the story you want to tell? You know, am I um, do I have this amazing technology that's for the first time in the world is able to be used in this in this way that's really valuable for this customer and this these customer behaviors growing and um, that's a bad example but you know I think it's really important to be able to get people into your vision the, building the empathy around um, what you how you see yourself in that market and can and bought into kind of where your approaches are so yeah. A bunch of data doesn't do that, right? Yeah. A bunch of data data yeah. reinforces that, but you need to tell the story and and use particular markers to be able to draw an audience through. Yeah. So yeah, I've mentioned this before on an earlier podcast episode that I saw a tweet by someone who mentioned that the biggest mistake that a startups you do when when they are out fundraising is that they use pitch tech as a del- vehicle of delivery of facts, but instead they should be using pitch tech as a vehicle of delivery of emotions. I mean, we're emotional creatures. I think we respond more to the remember the emotions we we have. We we turn to facts to make it to validate it, right? Yeah. And to quantify yeah. it. You know, if you say yeah. I'm the best way to be able to convert your customers, okay. Well, how much by how much, right? So, yeah, facts. I think are less effective in getting someone to remember you. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. So I I have a question regarding like sometimes founders fudge their numbers or they tend to lie (laughs) when they talk to investors. I've seen this, but what do you think about that? I mean, there is this concept of like a fake till you make it. Well, right now we're witnessing in the U S a pretty high profile case of, Someone yeah. lying, right? Yeah, and fudging numbers. Yeah, so uh, Theranos obviously is is under scrutiny now. So I think there's a, a, I guess, a group of investors that are willing to write a check after the first you know few hours, and 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 there's a lot of capital in the market. So I think it's definitely a founder's market in that sense. So I guess there's increases the potential chance of bad behavior. I don't, I mean, I, trust is it's absolutely, and trust and integrity is key for all, almost all relationships, right? So that's a given. Yeah. 76 investments so far, we, we haven't received, there wasn't been a case of fraud, right? So um, partially lucky, but partially because, you know, we're, we're paying really good attention to uh, the integrity and how people behave themselves. I think that yeah. matters in the long so, term. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not saying outright, uh, you know, running away with the money or something like that. What I'm saying is like a startup might have an hypothesis where like cost of doing something is maybe like, a, let's say $100. So that is not true when they tested it, but then they continue to say that is the thing. 
or something like that you know it's just an example so it's like maybe white lies kind of thing yeah i think there's white there's vanity metrics right people focus on gmv or they focus on yeah. other things that that i think with a sophisticated investor they're going to double click on that and understand that hey yeah this is just vanity so yeah it doesn't look good I mean, if you're going to pitch to a dumb investor, okay, yeah, maybe you'll get relief and it's fine. You're going to get a lot of hype and you get a hot deal. Good for you. But, you know, for a sophisticated investor, they're going to look at that poorly and say, hey, you know what? Yeah, this guy's trying to embellish something that's not there. What's the rationale behind it? Are the fundamentals off? You know, something something that's not strong and they're using something else. Oh, just just be real. Just go, hey, you know what? We're not, we don't have it. The numbers yeah, but the, the hundred or two hundred customers we have are coming back every day. Just just yeah. get real. You know, it's a long term relationship. Yeah. Sometimes when I see instances like this, there's like a moral dilemma. <laughs> so am I not? Maybe I should also be doing a little bit of this because yeah, a lot of people used to be uh, like I I've seen a lot of examples where people do this and then get away with it. Yeah, of course you you can fix it probably at a later point. Yeah, and I think maybe some investors are, they note it, they track it, but they, for them, you know, the market is very attractive and potentially the team's the first mover. So they're willing to take it and work with the founder on making sure that, hey, they're not relying on false signals, right? So yeah, this not to say that, hey, I don't think founders should do it just because, you know, it it doesn't look great. But for the founders that are getting away with it, I wouldn't say that they're getting away because the all the time the investors are just don't notice it it's just because they're willing to tolerate it yeah yeah investors are very smart people i always wonder you know how do they get away with it yeah yeah it's a tough i mean the other thing to look at is just how nascent the ecosystem is right in in the u.s where it's very mature and everyone speaks the same language and you know basically the information that goes from one hub to another the spokes around the hub there's literally it's so dense right so uh, everyone has the same information it's all symmetric it's hard to get away with something here in emerging markets where you know it's still five years old vietnam seven eight years old indonesia 10 years old singapore these hubs and spokes are pretty sparse not to mention the language barriers and different ecosystems so someone can get away with murder right that behavior isn't instantly traversed. There's really unbalanced information. So as the ecosystem yeah. matures and everything else, but you can start realizing, hey, that guy's a crook, this scam or whatever, then then it becomes a much more sustainable ecosystem, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's what we rely on too. You know, as we invest, we look at our co-investors, we look at other folks, and you know, all the, the large portfolio we have, we have a lot of connections. And rely on that to be able to do really understand the due diligence um, and and do deeper due diligence. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a one final question. Um, like, when you think about the future, what are you excited about? And you uh, moved now. I read that you moved permanently from US to Vietnam. So yeah, tell me, like, what are you so excited about the future and also Vietnam? Well, I'm excited about you know, these generational companies coming out of Southeast Asia, right? Because you have such a huge value creation there and diversity within within the market. And I'm excited to see the, a lot of these companies come out of Vietnam, start that journey out of Vietnam. You know, I think there's a, a group of companies that are going to be 
kind of the standard, I would say standard companies, companies that are solving some kind of universal basic need for a consumer or an SME, you know, but they're doing it in a way that's very, that's creating value through second order value generation, through data or AI. It's like deeper, deeper solutions all centered around tech. Yeah. And I think that's going to be the bulk of the value creation, like helping a lot of this rising middle class get the needs that they want, you know, education, healthcare, whatever. And then SMEs, helping them acquire customers cheaper, serve them better, run their businesses with higher margins, XYZ, access, finance, financial services. But there's a small but growing category of companies, I think, are category makers like Axie Infinity that I'm excited about. You know, Vietnam has a very interesting DeFi blockchain kind of universe that's being there's there's tons of hype but at the same time there's a lot of like experience and gems around here as well being accumulated you know it started with a small group of folks working on several different different chains and exchanges many years ago and now it's kind of blossomed to hey this is a kind of hot spot here so nfts and DeFi is very 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 exciting shift in technology this whole idea of the customer the product, the creator, the investor in the community all mash into one and the alignment that gets created all through them. That was a promise for blockchain, but with NFTs, it becomes actually feasible, I think. And more and more of these use cases we can wrap our heads around. So I'm super excited on that. Yeah. And one other thing, what are some of the biggest problems facing maybe humanity, in your opinion, and then that we need to fix? Socially, I think that's that's there's some big things happening with you know, nationalism. You know, I'm a big proponent that you know everyone should just treat each other equally and and have access to the same resources and and everything else. But then there's this move, to, especially with with borders shutting down and everything else. Um, you know, people retreating back to to nationalism. I also worry about you know U.S. China. I guess the East and West coming to friction there. On a climate perspective, there's a lot of things yeah. that, that can be improved there. Like these NFT drops that are happening, they're hugely, you know, damaging to the environment. Like it's a single NFT drop, so it's like 90 round trip airplanes across the U.S. or something like that. I came across a game that's doing, you know, this carbon offset NFT. So their 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 fund, 30% of their fund, it goes to you know, helping the environment. So there's a lot that we, we still need to do, but I think COVID is, is probably the first thing. It should have brought us together, yeah. but sometimes it's, it's, it's kind of, in some countries, divided us. So Yeah. Yeah, so awesome. This has been like a really cool conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, excited to, to be part of it. So best of luck on your, I guess your 20th episode count is this? Uh, this will be 16 or 17. <laughs> oh, I was, I was almost correct. So looking forward to your 100th. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Rahul. Bye-bye. If you like this episode, please share it with folks who might be interested. And also subscribe at understandingvc.com and leave us a review. Thank you.